So our reading is 1 Peter 2. We'll start at verse 9, but we'll be looking at verse 18 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit to is you if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the overseer and shepherd of your soul. And the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the teaching of your word, the things that we need to learn, the things that we need to do. Ask, Lord, for mercy as we consider it carefully and try to change and transform our lives through the help of your Spirit into the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, this is talking about us living as strangers and pilgrims in the land, keeping our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable for God's glory, for God's kingdom. And so he turns his mind from our obligations to submit to the government, to authority over us, to a specific authority, that of masters over their servants. Now, the word servant here is not the common word for servant or the common word for slave. It's, it's something that falls in between the two. And it's most likely a, a reference to the slave class in Rome in that day. Uh, by the time Peter was born and continuing to this point, 
there were people who were born slaves. Uh, the Roman government was no longer allowing the attacking and kidnapping of you know, foreign countries to make them slaves, uh, no longer forcing people into slavery in general. But you could be born a slave. And these people were not slaves like in the American sense. You know, subhuman, the lowest of the low, treated like animals, given no rights. Uh, Roman law had rights for slaves, and they actually weren't mistreated the way we tend to think of slavery in America. Uh, the slaves there were actually often the managers, the overseers, even professionals, not just the average worker. If you think about what they really were in doing, they were like the general long-term worker. You know, the day laborers who hung out and waited for somebody to say, I need you know, four bodies, you know, come with me, you'll do hard work for the day, and I'll give you a day's pay. They had no steady pay, no steady income, no, no security. There were also the craftsmen and the tradesmen who were free and independent and worked and got paid for their work. And of course, there were the rich and the landowners and the business owners who had people working for them, but the people working for them were predominantly these slaves. Well, they had no freedom to change their employer. They were well-treated, well-paid, and could actually buy their freedom. Now, not everybody was well-treated and well-paid. And that's what Peter's point will be in a moment. Now, if you think about America, you hire somebody, you give them on-the-job training, they learn their skill after a year or so, and they leave the company to go somewhere else for a higher salary. And you've lost all that money. Well, this protected them from that. They trained them, and then they had to continue working there. I remember when I was looking for work, somebody suggested I become a truck driver. And I looked it up. Truck driving schools are free. But you have to work for the trucking company for five years. The pay is terrible. The treatment is horrible, and you're not free to leave unless you pay for the, what they consider the full cost of the education. And so most people who did it said you're better off saving your money and doing it yourself or taking out a loan. But that's where these people were. They were living as slaves, but probably as professionals or as employees, at least. And he tells us to be subject to them. Now, according to the commentators, this is another one of those Jewish problems where because they were the seed of Abraham, they thought they shouldn't be servants of anyone. We looked at this last week. Uh, the Jews were quite outraged when Jesus told them they were slaves. John 8, 31 to 34. Remember he said to the Jews, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Obviously, they don't know their history. How is it that you can say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to everyone, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But note how outraged they were. They felt they should be free. They denied their own history that they had been slaves for a good portion of it. Um, this is their pride, and this mentioned the problem last week that they were considered ungovernable. And here, you know, Paul 
Peter rather is in a particular problem. Now, not only the unbelieving Jews, but even the believers in Christ, Jew and Gentile, seem to be thinking that they shouldn't be serving an unbelieving master because they were better than that, and they shouldn't even have to serve a believing brother because we're all equal. There's either Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. <coughs> Galatians 3, 28 and 29. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So apparently Peter was faced with the problem that they weren't honoring God by their life, by their service, by their employment even with unbelieving brothers. So here he's telling them they need to be submissive. And the Apostle Paul elsewise says the same thing. In uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24, he said, We should remain in the condition in which we were called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. Though if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. They were able to buy their freedom if they saved up their money. For he who is called in the Lord is, as a bondservant, is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is called as a bondservant, free, is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, do not become bondservants with men. So brothers, whatever condition each was called, let him remain in it with God. So, the idea is, yes, it's better to be free than a servant, a slave, but don't be concerned about it. If you're a slave, be continuing that without feeling offended or feeling upset. And that was to be the rule of their life and of their behavior so that God was glorified amongst the Gentiles. And he tells them, submit with all respect. Now this is another one of those translations where you have to scratch your head and go, why do they keep doing that? The word here is phobos. I use the Greek word because you probably will recognize the word phobia. Phobia is an irrational fear. Phobos is the common word for fear. It's used throughout the New Testament for when people are afraid. And what he's really telling them is with, be subject to your masters with all fear. Now the fear here is the same word used in the previous verse, in verse 18, where he says, fear God. That's a verb form, but it's the verb form of this noun, to fear. And it is used to fear the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, he says. The fear of the Lord there is the word here. So what we're being told is to have that fear, not, not quaking in our boots and frightened, but as we fear the Lord by honoring him, respecting him, and being afraid to offend him, so we should also treat our masters the same way. And that's important because Paul adds to this in Ephesians 6 with fear and trembling. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, he says, Bond servants, the word here is slave, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So the idea being we are to fear those in authority over us in the sense of honoring them, respecting them, not angering them, and because they have the right to punish the wrongdoer. Now, in America, we don't have this class of slaves, but really these would be the employees. You know, the closest parallel. who need to submit to and respect their, their bosses. Show honor to God by doing that. This respect and honor is due to them perfect, personally. We're not to disrespect them. We're not to undermine them. We're to carefully obey their orders, not with indifference, not trying to twist them. You ever had somebody do that? And you give them a clear instruction and they twist what you said around and do the wrong thing deliberately to cause trouble? And we're not to be like that. And we're to be faithful to their trust, not being careless about things entrusted to us, not being indifferent to them, but to work with all diligence as if we were working for the Lord. And being careful not to offend them, not to anger them, but to honor them as is appropriate. Not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. You remember that was in the last passage we read where he was talking about submitting to the government. And he tells us not to use our freedom. Live as people who are free. Verse 16. Not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And we ought to say, well, I'm a free man so I can get away with this, or I'm free in Christ so I don't have to listen to you as my master. I have one master, and that is God. Have you ever hear somebody say that? I don't have to submit to you, my boss, my mother, my father, my government, the police. I have one master, God. Well, that's wrong. As we see, God has appointed all authorities over us, and we must obey them. Now, of course, we must also obey God rather than men. We looked last week at Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29, and I want to remind, remind us of that. Remember, the, the, the apostles were arrested, and they were brought before the council, and the high priest questions them, saying, We strictly charge you not to preach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, they had murdered Jesus, so they should but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. So Paul has set a, set a standard here. We must do what God says. We can't sin just because the boss tells us to or the government tells us to. And since they were commanding them to stop teaching the truth about Christ, then he says we can't obey you. But he says, we must submit to the government, we must submit to our masters, to our bosses. And notice it's whether good or bad. And it's, it's annoying but possible to do this with a good and gentle master. Good meaning those who have a good nature, they're not bad natured, they're not the surly boss who always you know, says bad things to you and complains about you and harasses you day and night. A good one. You know, to a merciful one, one who uh, acknowledges that you can use your sick time, uh, 
or that if you're injured on the job, he takes care of you. I remember at GE somebody being told that they had taken too many sick days. They hadn't taken all of the allowed sick days. But we were allowed like 10 sick days and he had taken five. And he was told to be careful because he was being lazy and not doing his job and he could lose it. Now, not that kind of boss. The good one who says, yes, if you're unwell, stay home. Not the slave driver who says, you know, get in here and work and if you pass out, we'll dock your pay. Uh, the merciful boss, the one who's moderate, reasonable, rational in their demands, and not working you to death. I, I remember the story about the people who were throwing themselves off the top of the manufacturing building in China. They were making iPhones. Apparently, the demands on them were so strict and so severe that if they worked at 110% perfectly all day long, they could just barely make the mustard. And if they, the mustard. And you know, if they fell short at all, they'd be harassed and bullied, their pay would be docked, and people were committing suicide because they were so miserable. Not that kind of boss, but the boss who says, okay, I, you know, this is what needs to be done, I know you can accomplish that much in a day, you've got to do that much, and isn't irrational about it. A good boss that we can submit to. You know, not working you to death and blowing up when you can't keep it. I had a friend, friend who I knew worked at uh, Microsoft right out of college. Uh, college graduates who go to work for Microsoft usually last two or three years, he said. And by that point, they've been worked to death, they're, they're burned out, they can't function properly, and they're discarded for a new crop. Now, not that kind of boss, but the kind who will take care of you. The one who gives you, in the case of slaves, sufficient food, shelter, clothing, wages, Sufficient for your life, not trying to teach you and undermine you at every point. Uh, that kind of boss you would like, not the one who will dock your pay for the least thing or try to cheat you out of some of your income or charge you for the things they give you, but the one who wants you to be successful and happy too. Now, for a good one, for a good boss, it hurts our pride a little bit, but we can submit to them, right? It's a joy sometimes if you had a bad boss and suddenly a new boss comes in and they're good. It's like, oh, life is so good and happy. And what does Peter say? Submit to the good and curse the bad? No. It's not just about the just, but the unjust. The word here literally means crooked or curved. And it's used metaphorically of somebody who's perverse or wicked. And in other words, unfair. Un unhelpful, surly even, uh, the person who's the opposite of the good boss. In fact, all of the bad things I was just saying, not the kind of person who does that. He's, he's taking two extremes, right? The boss you love to work for, the boss you can't stand to work for. He's saying we must submit to both. Uh, we do have a choice, though. We, in America, we can go get a new job, usually. I remember a Christian young man who'd been working for a while and he was, they were asking about preferences for work schedules and shifts and he asked to get Sundays off so he could go to church and he was then scheduled for every Sunday from, from then on and after a few months you know, the boss's contempt for his employees was so apparent and the company's contempt for his, their employees 
was so apparent that they did things deliberately to make life unpleasant. Now, this wasn't a Christian persecution thing. It was a, oh, you want something? We'll do the opposite, because I'm in charge. Uh, we have a choice then to just leave, which is what he did. He left the job, found a new one. Uh, we don't have a right to you know, get up and start cursing the boss. We can tell them, yes, you're being unjust and unfair. Or you can ask, why, <laughs> you know, why are you doing this to me? Is there a problem? Uh, but we need to do so lightly, with honor, with respect, in submission to them. You know, submitting does not mean you don't tell them they're wrong. You don't tell them they're breaking the law. We have plenty of examples of that, including what Peter did in Acts 5 that we just read, telling them, I, I know you commanded that, but we must obey God rather than men. And so in this, this matter, not just the good and the gentle, but also the unjust, we need to submit to them, and as servants who are working under authority, need to submit to their authorities with all diligence. And the reason he gives is because it is a gracious thing in God's sight. Verse 19 and 20. You know, it's gracious in God's sight to be in submission, true submission. Uh, consider what Paul says when he's talking about our, the obligations of wives and husbands and children and father in Colossians 3. Verse 22, he turns to bondservants, slaves again. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily is for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. And so well, we are called to do this very sincerely, as if we were doing it for God. Whatever we're doing, whether we're digging a ditch, cleaning the dishes, cleaning the latrine, or in doing some great and wonderful task, we're working for God ultimately. That's how we should view it. And so Peter calls it a gracious thing when we're suffering unjustly. And we're encouraged and pleased to suffer unjustly for God's glory. Now the word here, gracious thing, is the common word for grace. When we say grace, normally what do we think about? Well, the goodwill, the loving kindness, the favor of God, in which he you know, gives us undeserving sinners salvation. But technically, that's the second meaning of grace. The primary meaning of grace, in the biblical word, is something that brings joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. An example of being gracious speech. You, know, you have the person who, when they speak, even when they say nice things, you, your teeth kind of break. Um, the kind of person who, even when they're saying something harsh, says it in a manner and with an attitude and a hard attitude, which brings still pleasure to you to hear. And so this is a gracious thing before God, meaning it brings, it's pleasant to God, it's sweet to God to see us in submission to him 
by being in submission even to an unjust boss or master. Um, Jesus does say in Luke 6, 32-33, If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do that. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is for you for sinners do the same? And we're called to love those who mistreat us, who persecute us, who harass us. We are to submit to them if they're an authority over us because we are mindful of God, is what Peter says here. If you're as mindful of God, then it is gracious to God. Now think back to what we just read in Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Work, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. If we're working for the Lord, then even though the boss who might be over us directly might be an unpleasant person or a difficult person, we know that if we obey the Lord, we will get a reward. Uh, I have seen that even in my own life where my immediate supervisor is a jerk, but the one above him is not stupid. And he recognizes people who are good and promotes them or takes care of them, even though the boss may want to keep them down so that they look worse than them. Of course, they've had the other kind of boss, too, which delights in the oppression his subordinates give to their subordinates. Uh, but he's saying here, it's gracious if we submit to the Lord because we're mindful of that. And even... Do it as for the Lord, even though we're doing it for an unjust or an unpleasant person. And this really is how we should be living our new life. We read here that Jesus is our example. We'll get to that in just a minute. But remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.15, that Jesus died for us, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. You know, we have a new life in Christ. That new life in Christ is not lived for ourselves, for our pleasures, for our good, for our glory, for our happiness. It's lived for the glory of God and for the glory of the one who died for us. And if we are truly going to live for Christ and we are working for God, even whatever we are doing, we shouldn't be worried about the unjustness being inflicted upon us. Uh, as we died for Christ, or as Christ died for us, what difference does it matter if we suffer? And if we're living for Christ, <coughs> he also, though, goes on to say, what, what credit do we get if we suffer for our own wrongdoing? Isn't it just? Right? If we have sinned, if we do bad, if we you know, mouth off to the boss, if we resist the authorities, if we commit crimes or sins, and we're punished. Well, God has promised the wrongdoer will be paid back for his wrong in this life and eternity. And so we should be careful about that. We should understand that the boss will punish us. God will punish us. The state will punish us. Right, we saw that last week in Romans 13, uh, verse 4 talking about the, the authorities there, God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. 
who is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God upon wrongdoers. Now, the, God's wrath is for the unbelievers, not for the Christians, but he does, Christ, he does chastise his children, the Christians, for their sins. We see that in Hebrews 12. We've looked at this before. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses your sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary or reproved, or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? And you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're not then you're only illegitimate children, not sons. So, well, we don't have to fear God's wrath directly. We may fear his chastisement. And if we suffer for doing wrong, we're receiving our just, not, not entirely our just desert, but we're deserving, receiving what we deserve. So there's no credit for us in that. There's no glory to be received if we're punished by the boss for our mistreatment, our misdeeds, or if we're persecuted and harassed or suffering and justly, then we suffer justly. However, there is a benefit to enduring such things. And if we are suffering justly for our sin, we're told in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that godly grief, which comes from our suffering, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And for the believer, if we are suffering justly, it can drive us to repentance and drive us to endeavor to live more closely to Christ. Now, repentance can't be separated from that, that fact. You repent from sin, turn to God, and so you are endeavoring to do better before God in the future. And that's the benefit of suffering justly. But here, it says when we are mindful of God suffering wrongly, that God is pleased. And we will have a reward from him. Now note the context. Now, persecution for our faith is very common and does happen and is rewarded. Blessed are those are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great in heaven is your reward. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Now, if we're persecuted for our faith, unjustly, that has great reward, but that's not the context here. What is the context here? The context here is not suffering for sin, not suffering for Christ's name, suffering unjustly because an evil person is making you suffer without cause. Not Christ, not sin, but no cause. We still have God's blessing, and God sees that, our bearing up under that as a good thing, a pleasing thing. And it brings a blessing. Of course, his point is that this blessing comes, this gracious thing before God comes because we're mindful of God and we endure it. 
And he goes on to show us an example of this, and that example being Christ in verse 21 through 25. And he tells us, for this you have been called, to suffer unjustly, not just in persecution, but for no reason. And it is unjust from the evil boss he's talking about in the passage. We have been called to suffer evil at the hands of evil men for Christ, but also for no reason. You know, we might think, oh, if I'm being persecuted for Christ, I can feel confident that God is blessing me. But we need to remember that if we're persecuted or harassed or mistreated just because the person is evil, that God also finds that pleasing to him, that we endure it. And Christ is given as our example. First, it points out that he suffered for us. At Romans 8, 3 and 4, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order, the right, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, he sent Christ to suffer for us. Christ suffered through this whole life, not just the cross. You know, he was born into a cursed world. He knew hunger. He knew cold. He knew heat. He knew thirst. He suffered from the curse upon the earth. He suffered from evil people his whole life. Some of them hating him, you know, because he was the son of God, but some just mistreating him because that's how they treat people. He suffered all of that. And why did he suffer those indignities living in this cursed world? But for us. And he calls on us then to follow his footsteps. Now, following in his footsteps, you know, what would Jesus do? Hmm, Jesus would call down fire upon them. Right, Luke 9, 51 and 50 through 56. When the days drew near and he was on his way to Jerusalem, essentially, he set his face to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him, Jesus we're talking about, and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people would not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? And he rebuked them and went on to another village. They're called the sons of thunder, those two. Um, you know, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about living in imitation of Christ. What we're talking about as an imitation of Christ is what's given in this passage. What is the example that we are to follow? He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. That's the first thing. How do we imitate Christ? Not sinning, not lying. Now, who can claim that? But that is our goal. And that is the command. Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, part of our change from our old self to our new self, from being a godless person to having the spirit in us and the new life in us, is that we turn away from sin and turn away particularly from deceit, from lying to each other. And so that is the first imitation. Honesty, integrity. Turning away from sin. You know, abstain from sinful passions, he says in verse 11, as sojourners 
and exiles. This this message that he's giving, this, these things that he commands them, would be impossible if we were living for this world. We are strangers, we are pilgrims. We can only imitate him as a stranger and a pilgrim. He was going back to heaven. He knew he was going back to heaven. That is his home. And we must think the same way. We also are called here that when he was reviled, when people were casting curses and speaking evil of him, he didn't revile in return. And what do we want to do naturally when somebody curses us or slanders us? We want to yell at them, to curse them back. But he did not. When he suffered, he did not threaten. You know, we want to let him know that we will avenge ourselves when people are abusing us. You'll get yours. It's part of human nature. But when he suffered, he did not threaten them. He did not even say to them, you know, God will return on you your sin this day. He endured it like a lamb that is silent before its shearers. He suffered and did not threaten. And he can, the important point is, though, he continued entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. You know, that is the whole key to living a godly life and a holy life. Instead of saying, I need to avenge myself. I need to make sure that this works out my way. I need to assure that I'm happy. If we look to God's glory and trust him, that he will repay us. That he will give us glory in heaven for what we lose here on earth. Indeed, he promises a tenfold return we read recently. Jesus entrusted himself to God because he knew God would judge justly. If we are suffering unjustly, God will make it just and will repay us for what we have suffered. That is the promise. If we trust him, if we believe in him, if we believe in his promises, we know he will punish sinners and we know that he will reward us for our good and one of the good deeds we do is submitting to authority even when it is unjust and improper. Now, we must obey God rather than men. Yes, certainly. But when we suffer, even unjustly, we know that he will return it to us. And this is really a matter of trust. Do we believe Jesus will do what he promised? Do we believe what he will do what he says? Do we believe Romans 8.28? For those who are loved by God, all things will work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If we are beloved of God, if we are chosen, if we are living, you know, if we expect that we are saved and are going to heaven, called according to his purpose, will he not work this out for our good? We're not talking just about cancer. We're not talking just about persecution. We're not talking even just about suffering in this world. We're talking about when we're harassed by godless people who hate everybody and want to hurt everybody equally. Now, I remember reading once in um, <coughs> a newsletter about martyrs, they were talking about a girl who had acid thrown upon her and be robbed as you know, her being a martyr. And when you read the story, um, they're just common robbers. They had no idea who the girl was. It had nothing to do with the fact that she was a Christian. 
She was just a girl walking alone that they robbed by throwing acid in her face because they were evil. Not a martyr, but if she endures and does not curse and puts up with this and trusts in God and hopes in God, there's blessing from God and there will be recompense for her that she will receive blessings in accordance with the sufferings that she endured. This is the promise. Do we trust him? Now this is really the key to this whole section about living as strangers and pilgrims. Will we trust that God will do what he has said? Will we, as Jesus did, entrust ourselves to him who judges justly? Now Jesus could easily have told them, I am the Son of God, the, third, the second person of the Holy Trinity, one of the three in one. You know, by persecuting me, you're doing evil to me, you're bringing down harsh condemnation on yourself in hell for all eternity. Stop. But he didn't. He trusted in Christ, in God. Christ trusted in his Father. He judged justly and did what God had assigned him to do. And his job was to suffer and die for our sins. What is our job? To have a wonderful life? Well, here our job is to submit to, well, to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. One way we do that, submit to authority. Another way we do that, subject, submit to our masters. Uh, continuing on in that theme, you know, wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents, all of those things are ways in which we live as strangers and pilgrims, controlling our conduct before the Gentiles, honoring and glorifying God. So this idea of entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly is really the key to living this life of Christianity that we're supposed to do. Trust God, glorify God, obey God, put his glory and his kingdom first, living out our new lives for Christ. Now verse 24 and 25, it's talking about really the gospel. Our sins are paid for by Christ. He bore our sins on the cross. The sins are paid in full. They are no longer being accounted to us in heaven. And he did this that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness. That we need no longer be slaves to sin but that we might live our lives for God and for his kingdom. Like sheep that have gone astray, we've returned to the overseer of our souls. Now think how far some of us were from God or how close we thought we were. And when we were saved, when we came to know him and came to understand him, we've drawn back to him and say, you are my shepherd, you know, take care of me, lead me where I need to go, show me what I need to do, correct me when I get out of line. Concerning the meat sacrifice to idols controversy that happened in the early church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31-33, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, so he's expanding upon this, using the example, and it doesn't matter whether you eat meat or not eat meat, or you drink or you don't drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greek or the Church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seek my own advantage. 
but that of many that they may be saved. And that is the calling to live as strangers and pilgrims and abstain from sin, putting God's kingdom, his glory, and his work first, and living the life that he has called us to, and not living for our own pleasures. It's a hard thing that he has called, but he has given us an example in Christ. If you really think about him leaving heaven, coming to earth, suffering from the cursed world, suffering from wicked people, suffering for the sins of his people, and dying, that is the example of Christ that we are given to do for ourselves. And we are told in this passage that that means submitting even to evil managers. I'm going to assume since they're linked together even to evil government, as long as we submit to the Lord first, we will submit to them. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is difficult for us as even Christians to live a life that puts our needs, our desires, our wants second and puts you, your kingdom, and your glory first. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about these things and as we look at our lives and our situations, that you would teach us to control our tongues, to control our lives, to live as strangers and pilgrims, abstaining from sinful desires keeping our conduct honorable before the Gentiles, that they may honor you and that we may honor you. And living, Lord, for you first, following the example of your Son, who lived his life in this world for you and for us. And we ask, Lord, for your strength in this, in Jesus' name. Amen.